Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Delight to be here with Dr. Mona Fishbane, a clinical psychologist, licensed in Illinois and New Jersey, who is the past director of the Couple Therapy Training Program at the Chicago Center for Family Health. She's the author of the book, Loving with the Brain in Mind, Neurobiology and Couple Therapy, published by Norton in 2013, and has written numerous articles and book chapters, and has consulted with rabbis on retreat, spoken in synagogues, and written for the journal Shema on the overlap between Jewish values and wisdom from neurobiology and psychology. In 2017, she was named Family Psychologist of the Year by the American Psychological Association Division 43. Dr. Fishman, thanks so much for taking time to talk. It's a pleasure to be with you, Shmuley. Um, thank you. So it, it, it makes sense. Um, this is so exciting. And can you tell us what in your experiences led you to, to write this? Sure. So I've been practicing couple therapy for many years. I first went to graduate school in the early 70s. I grew up with the field of couple and family therapy. And in 2004, I uh, discovered neurobiology. I went to a, a, a retreat to learn neurobiology, and I just totally fell in love with neuroscience. And I started writing articles on integrating that with couple and family therapy. And then in 2009, Norton asked me, the publisher Norton asked me to write a book, which became that book. It's part of the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology. Um, so that's really been my passion ever since, and that's, that's where the book comes from and, and where I'm still very much um, passionate about. So, you know, when I think of neurobiology in the brain, I think determinism. And when I think of Judaism, I think teshuva. I right. think change. And when I think of relationships, I think of the, the, the stability and the evolution together. Correct. So how do we think about um, determinism and teshuva? And in particular, the question, as individuals and in couples, can we change? Great question. You cut right to the heart of the matter. You know, I'm a <laughs> therapist, and therapists are in the business of change. That's what we do. But then people resist, quote, unquote. They don't go with our little plans for change. Um, the, the old, do you remember being in college and, the, and we debated nature versus nurture? Exactly I don't know if you, right. if you did in your day, but in my day, we certainly That's did. Right. Um, and it turns out that neuroscience has actually resolved that debate. It's both and. Right. So um, we're born with genetic predispositions and temperaments, which then affect, you know, our, our relationships. But relationships nurture very much change the brain. The baby's brain is born wired to connect, ready to be connected by how the parents and caregivers treat the baby. Um, baby has a lot of neurons, but not a lot of connected neurons. And it's the circuits of neurons in our brain that sort of are, uh, indicate who we are and, and, and how we behave. So depending on how you're raised, plus your genetic predisposition, the two come together. Um, and we now know that experience not only wires the, the circuits of neurons, but it also changes your epigenetics, which is how your um, genes are expressed. Um, so it's very exciting, the, the research, right? Which is it really, really, really matters um, what environment you're raised in and how you live your whole life. So let's come to the question of can you change as an adult, right? So there's a term called neuroplasticity, 
which is the ability of the brain to change. And the research shows that the child's brain is extremely plastic, i.e. changeable. The baby's born ready to be shaped by culture and by family, etc. We used to think, or scientists used to think, that after age 25, your brain was fully wired and it was all downhill from there as you lost neurons as you age. And it is true that we learn, lose neurons as we age. But um, that's not, that's not a, a, a sentence necessarily. We can actually, depending on how we live, we can actually keep our neurons quite vital. But it turns out now that research, um, really spearheaded by Eric Kandel, who, who wrote an amazing book called In Search of Memory and won the Nobel Prize for, for his work, he showed that neuroplasticity can continue. He showed first that learning changes the brain. So everything we do changes our brain. And he also showed that neuroplasticity can continue into adulthood, which is what a lot of research has shown, which is the hopeful sign. So the question is, you know, can old dogs learn new trips, <laughs> tricks, and can a zebra change its stripes? And the answer is old dogs can learn new tricks, but it takes a lot of work in adulthood for us humans to change, a lot of um, motivation and practice for, for us to change our, our wiring and our habits. And with regard to the zebras, I mean, there are certain limitations based on our temperament and our genetic limitations, but we really can make a lot of changes in adulthood, which is a very hopeful, I think, finding in terms of what the field of neuroscience teaches us. So we, you know, we oftentimes talk about change as being cognitive, being behavioral, being affective. What's the real entry point? When we talk about getting in there for that, for that and there's that plasticity, there's that potential to really, to really evolve, um, what is what is that primary entry point? Of course, there's never just one in right. terms of um, how we can how, how we can create lasting change. I think it's definitely all three. You've nailed all three, right? It's how we behave, it's how we think, what are what are our narratives, and how how we feel, and they're all intertwined. So if I have a narrative, you know, that my partner is selfish, it's going to fuel my anger. It's going to fuel my self protection or my blame, right? If my narrative is that, that I love, by the way, today's my anniversary. Oh, <laughs> my husband's in my anniversary. We've been together a very long time. And, um, and I, I lucked out. I got a great guy. You know him. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, we're, constant, we're still evolving. We're still growing. Um, we've been home together during the pandemic, and we're growing together during the pandemic. So I feel very blessed to uh, continue to, to, to evolve uh, with him. But it's, it's definitely all three. And the other thing is that we shape each other's brain and each other's identity. Yes. How we behave with our partner has ethical implications for our partner's own well-being, body and soul. Yeah. You know, on, and emotional. on the first point around um, nature and nurture and all that, the way right. I saw it most was when, when foster children enter our home. The foster child will clearly never be uh, similar to our biological children in, in some ways. And in other ways, only in days and in weeks, they have radically changed, not just physically in terms of their nourishment, uh, but in terms of their speech and their other, um, their other capabilities. Now, I'm picking up on this last Wait, before point. you go, I just want to say how much I admire you for doing that. I mean, oh. I, I've been tracking your work and your, and your generosity of spirit. Shmuley, it's amazing what you and your wife no, do. We gain, you we gain far more than we give through that and any other endeavor. We're, we're very fortunate, but thank you. So on this point about relationships, talk to me about interdependence. You know, we, yes. we tend to celebrate in America independence. I built myself. Yes. I am my own person. I, and even, even go to individuals therapy rather than, than couples therapy and the like. Right. How, do you, how do we understand on, on, on the neurobiological level 
um, this notion of interdependence. Well, you've, you've nailed it again. I mean, you, you're hitting all the hot spots, all the key mo points for me, which I really appreciate. So um, our, the United States, the dominant culture in the United States, you know, the, the, the mythic hero is the cowboy, the rugged individualist. And for a long time, psychotherapists and psychoanalysts have fed that notion that you've got to grow up and be autonomous and, you know, put dependence behind you. We now know that that's not true. We now know, and the this is based on really solid research, that we are interdependent throughout life. We need others throughout life. There's a lot, there's, there's a field called psychoneuroimmunology, which looks at the relationship between your mind, your brain, and your immune system and your social life, right? And it's very clear that a rich social life and a good support system makes a huge difference in terms of your well-being. So, um, the, the, but the problem is that many couples take in this myth of individualism and then they get into power struggles. You can't tell me what to do. You're calling me selfish. You're, you're, you don't understand me. I'm not going to let you boss me around. And of course, in heterosexual couples, there's some gender politics that go on there. Um, I think it's very damaging. I really do. M much of the rest of the world is not as um, tied to this fetish of individualism. Um, what we now know in this pandemic is that we are all intertwined. Um, as we say in Hebrew, call Yisrael Arivim Zabazer, we all humanity is intertwined. We're intervulnerable, interdependent, and we need to be interresponsible. So I'm really interested in the ways in which in a couple relationship, couples need to be taking care of each other. And there's, you know, we have fight or flight, right? You know, your amygdala detects danger and you go to fight or flight, you protect yourself. But we also have tend and befriend. This comes from Shelley Taylor's work. She's a psychoneuroimmunologist at UCLA. We're wired to take care of each other, which I think is really incredible, right? We're wired to be compassionate. There's a lot of research on this, a lot of writing on this, which I really have brought forward in my book and in my other writing and my teaching. So I feel like the, the I want to just share one, one quick little vignette with you from Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my favorite um, uh, people. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And he says that we all have inside ourselves <clears throat> seeds of love and compassion. And we also have seeds of anger and resentment. And the seeds that we water and nurture are the ones that will grow. So he says, water your seeds of love and compassion, not your seeds of anger and resentment. And water your partner's seeds of love and compassion also. So I feel like that's really important. We have choice. That's the other thing I want to just say is that we have an automatic brain that goes on automatic pilot a lot of the time. That's our emotional brain, our habits, right? But we have a higher brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is behind your forehead, that allows us to regulate our emotional brain. And we do have choice. You know, Viktor Frankl famously said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our freedom to choose. So a lot of my work with couples, and a lot of my work in my own life, frankly, is pausing and finding that space where I can make a choice is this, is the way I'm about to behave in keeping with my higher values, with who I want to be in this relationship? What impact will it have on my husband if I act in this way versus that way? And what impact will it have on our relationship? So we do have choice. Yeah, very different than a, an orientation of entitlement. Am I yes. getting out more than I'm putting exactly. in? Exactly, uh, right. As opposed to um, of care, yeah. The, dom the dominant, again, one of the dominant US values is my rights. Exactly. I mean, you see it now, people are marching in the streets for their rights, uh, even if it means somebody else dies because of their behavior. Um, Judaism talks about responsibility and obligation, and so does sort of many traditional cultures around the world. And I think it's both. I don't think we have to throw away rights, right? Individual rights. But it's not either or. And I think if we don't attend enough to the responsibility part of this, 
we really are falling short in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, we've been talking mostly about couples uh, so far, but let's, uh, let's talk briefly about intergenerational. Uh, sure. That's where it all starts, right? <laughs> that, right. I mean, we can, um, we can dissolve a partner relationship. I mean, right. Hopefully we don't have to, but we have right. that ability to do that. And, and, and the truth is we can, we can dissolve a relationship with a parent as well on a um, communicative level, but never on a biological level. And so how do we think about Kibbut Ava'im, honoring mothers and fathers, um, in regards to um, the implications it has for us long-term, the way we think about our parents the way, and as they're aging, the way we behave towards them, and the implications that has for us and our own well-being long-term? So it's a great question. That's my other passion, is intergenerational relationships. I've lived it. I lived it with my parents. They died some years ago, but... For 13 years, they were an assisted living, living near me, and I was their main person, um, and um, also professionally. So I think that um, when we have unfinished business or old grievances with our parents or our siblings, mostly our parents, um, we, we, it, it definitely negatively affects us in our current life. Um, we get triggered in the ways, let's say our partner is, is critical, and our mother was critical, or our father was critical, and then we get triggered all over again. Um, one of my main teachers in the intergenerational uh, literature is Ivan Bozier Meninaj. He's no longer living, but he was a Hungarian family therapist who was very influenced by Martin Buber, as I was. Um, I think that um, Naj could have been a Jewish mother, except he wasn't a woman or Jewish, but, but he had those values. Um, and he says, when we carry this chip on our shoulder, we look to collect damages, but at the wrong address. Uh-huh. So we try to collect them, not consciously, but sort of unconsciously, from our spouse or our partner or our children, right? So a woman who was very angry at her father for not being around when she was a kid, has a baby, you know, all her wounds are healed because the baby adores her, it's all great. Then the boy becomes an adolescent and does what adolescents do, which is he turns away from her and then she goes nuts on him, right? Because she's been collecting damages from her son to make up for her father wound. So if we don't work on our issues with our family of origin, we will take it out inadvertently on our spouse or our children. Um, the stories we tell about our parents are often very old, very frozen in childhood. We don't necessarily know the backstory. I mean, one of the privileges, is my mother died at 98. And one of the privileges for me was getting to know her story more and more as she aged and I aged. And fleshing out that story really helped me understand her in a much more sympathetic way. I always loved my mother, but it was really helpful to know the backstory. Um, also, our parents may, once we left home, they may have you know, grown a bit and softened a bit, and we're still holding on to this view of them you know, from childhood. The other thing is that um, many of us are still what I call living under the spell of childhood, mm -hmm. right? We are waiting for our parents to wake up and give us what we want, <laughs> which of course you know, disempowers us and, and makes that relationship very fraught. So I like to talk about waking from the spell of childhood and coming to see our parents as real people. People who have their own life journey, their own vulnerabilities, their own ways of protecting themselves like we do. And um, trying to be a little more sympathetic, trying to bring what the Jewish tradition calls kav sechut, which is the kind of benefit of the doubt, looking at them with a positive eye as opposed to just a negative eye. And seeing parents as real people. One of my favorite quotes in family therapy comes from Michael Kerr, who says, think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter and get to know her that way. And of course, that would also be true of your father or your, you know, your grandfather. So that um, 
we try to imagine our parents as people who were on their own life journey. And that often creates, I think, more compassion. I also think a lot about how we update our relationships with our parents and siblings so we're not stuck in the past, not stuck in that child's view. So that's just a little, a little taste kind of, of, of what I think about. Amazing, wow, amazing. So um, just one last, one last question today, unless there's anything else you wanna add, sure. which is picking up on this last point you, you brought in of, of being done l'chavzchut, of judging more charitably. And I wonder, going beyond the home and the family, Right. Um, it seems like now, perhaps more than ever, <laughs> we um, there we are in a society that is uh, divisive, uh, right. and where there's a lot of anger, um, sometimes well placed, sometimes misplaced. And I wonder how we bring, uh, how we condition ourselves spiritually, affectively, each each day to go out into the world, and holding though that space a little bit more gently. How do we um, judge a little bit less harshly? Right. Um, as we understand each other's motives in what they're trying to achieve around us. Right. I think that's a great question. I, I think that um, one of the things we need to know is that when we feel threatened, our amygdala, which is always looking for safety versus danger, and when it experiences threat, it triggers the fight or flight response. And the amygdala is always biased, is biased towards the negative which is for survival purposes. It's, it's good for us, right? Because you, you, know, you see a, a wild animal in the forest and you run, right? You don't just sit around you know, talking to the, you know, the animal and, or getting between a mother bear and her cubs or whatever. Um, on the other hand, you don't judge the mother bear for being bad, right? Mother bear is doing what she needs to do to protect her cubs. Um, so we have to train ourselves to look for the positive, to cultivate positivity. I think, again, the Buddhist meditation um, um, tradition has a lot of wonderful ways of doing that in terms of the metta meditation, you know, loving kindness meditation. Um, I think Kavsahut, I just read that in, in, uh, in, I'm doing Dafyomi, which I love. And I just read that a few weeks ago in, or a few days ago in, in Dafyomi, the Kavsahut. So I think that, that it's something we need to train. It's not na natural for us to do Kavsahut. We really have to train ourselves for it. Um, and it's hard to do it in the current environment where people are so divided with each other. So, so, who, so who is this? Who is this for? Is this more for a practitioner, someone intellectually curious? Or is this for someone looking for their own healing or looking for their own tools? It's both. Um, I, as I as I write in the beginning of the book, um, readers ha writers have their reader in mind. You know, in the old days they would say gentle reader. You know, mm -hmm. so I had my reader in mind, and I. Um, it's certainly for therapists of all stages, but it's also for lay people who are interested, who are curious about um, relationships and how to make their relationships better, and also curious about how, what the brain has to do with it all. And it's not, um, I, I work really hard to make it accessible, to, to not have people have their eyes glaze over when they read it. It's not highly technical. I, I mean, I did a ton of re reading of research, so it's, it's based solidly on research, but I tried to make it very readable. And I have one case going through the book, uh, Eric and Lisa, so it almost, they're a composite case that I somewhat made up and somewhat took pieces from my own life or clients or whatever. So I think that um, uh, it, I, I wrote it so that it would be compelling for an intelligent, curious layperson as well as, um, as, well as therapists. Amazing. Friends, I can't w recommend highly enough that, that Dr. Fishbein, someone rooted in the academic and empirical world, in the practitioner and the experiential world, but also in living Jewish um, learning and values and with, with deep mental kites. So please be sure to check this out. Thank you, Dr. Fishbein, for your time. Thank you so much. Be well.